Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, we got more problems, uh, not problems with respect to migrants or migrant families in Chicago. Although BLM branded did call them a burden, so I'm I'm a little bit confused about that. But I, I don't think I think maybe a financial burden that right. he needs help with. But of course, people cannot be illegal, and so they can't be burdens. I get it. So um, turns out that there's about five thousand uh, kids brought here by their parents or a cartel trafficker or a sex trafficker. I'm not sure. Mixed bag. 5,000 kids here that uh, are now entering the Chicago public school system. Right. And so, uh, of course, CPS, being the budgeteers they are, That's right. being They're so... so well, and also, too, I mean, they're they're so penny wise, oh, yeah. you know, every single cent of taxpayer dollars is accounted for. It's been considered and budgeted you know, so precisely that there's not a lot of give there. And so with this influx of 5000 kids and uh, bilingual staff that's required wraparound services and so on and so forth, they oh. need more cash. And that's why Stacey Davis Gates, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, the chief Marxist there, head of that Politburo, and uh, Randy Weingarten. Oh, the dynamic duo, boy. Flew into town to have this little presser to uh, explain this uh, impasse we're at and, you know, what the city and state and federal government needs to do about it, mainly the federal government. We have needs, and these needs will not be met alone by the district or by the city. The Chicago Teachers Union is asking for more bilingual teachers, 100% of tuition costs for current teachers to get their bilingual certificates, and a migrant coordinator in each school that enrolls new arrivals. Well, seems reasonable. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. What the city is telling you, the city council in particular, we ain't got it. We city ain't, ain't got, got it. it. We ain't got it, so you give me that. <laughs> give me that. All right. Well, they're, so they're, they're the, accordingly, they speak 18 different languages, these migrants. So that's why it's not just a Spanish-speaking person that they need. They need everything. Chinese, Mandarin, Cantonese, you name it. Hey, you name it, we need it, Dan, okay? You had, me at, you had me at we ain't got it. <laughs> All right, you don't need to explain okay. yourself any further. Certainly, Stacey Davis Gates doesn't, and uh, uh, whatever. Sure, um, you know, I mean, just a—I don't want to be impertinent, but just a, a question: Did CPS expend all of the COVID funds that were allocated to it? You know, like 
the 125 billion in COVID funds and I don't know, last counting a few months back, school districts around the country had spent a little bit more than 10% of that $125 billion. Well, so, I mean, I did put in a HIPAA filtration system at all the schools, only to find out that that doesn't mean diddly squat. Well, what, what, when, when did they do that? Oh, years ago. Like right. right. So, yeah. so, so as of a few months ago, $125 billion allocated, uh, a little bit more than 10% spent. So, where the rest of it go? I know $95 million has already been repurposed by BLM Brandon city COVID funds right. for migrants. But I, I haven't Without heard a city an council ac- vote. But I haven't heard about a, a, an accounting for COVID funds for CPS. Not to mention, I mean, I know there is no waste, fraud, or abuse within CPS. I mean, I know how judicious they are with other people's money. But um, to the extent that uh, resource al- reallocations are required to accommodate what they desire to accommodate, it's their their choice, your choice, Chicago. These are your people. So I'm just I'm just that. asking questions about you know this need always need anytime there's some exigent circumstance there's always a need for the federal government the state government certainly not the city federal state government to come in with um, their their checks and just sign them and they'll fill in the amount later. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in. DA than a quick comment. Now, that human shrew, Randy Weingarten, who's the head of the American Federation for Teachers, um, they'll stop. They'll start representing children when children start paying dues. And don't you forget it. Uh, Randy Weingarten uh, was in town to offer sage advice to be a calming influence in this uh, difficult time. When mayors and governors work together on this and go to Washington together. That's actually very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. But, but let BLM Brandon uh, hop on your private family jet there, Jelly Belly, and head out to Washington and rattle your collective tin can around the rail there in the Capitol. Thank you. Oh, some other migrant news in Chicago. Uh, the uh, shelter in Pilsen. Oh, where that five-year-old boy died? That's right. But we're still waiting for the toxicology report. And the ME told me, sometimes it's not ever what you think it is, Amy. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just wait. Well, I, I don't know I'm sure. I, I have no idea what it is. So we know that this five-year-old boy died of unknown causes. That's why we have a medical examiner to tell us what the cause was. But, but linked to a disease that they said that was in the initial autopsy report, but... All right, what's going on there? Because I know they're still investigating. Well, Craig Wall is uh, on the job there, and he's just uh, tracking down some um, email exchanges between uh, uh, alder humans and City Hall based on what some volunteers are saying about the conditions in that migrant shelter. Mm-hmm. In Pilsen, like, you know, there's infestations of there's insects rats. and so on and so forth. Yeah, things like that. they're rats. So, um so um, here's the Craig Wall's report, and it, it uh, leads us to Alder Human Nicole Lee. This is her ward where that, uh, that migrant shelter is. In early October, complaints about conditions were brought to the attention of 11th Ward Alderwoman Nicole Lee. She immediately informed the city. In this email she sent the evening of October 28th, obtained by ABC7 News, Alderwoman Lee informed the mayor and top officials about numerous concerns about the shelter. The complaints included insufficient bathrooms and insect cockroach infestation. The city uh, 
the city officials responded um, pretty immediately, acknowledging that they received my email, that they were concerned about this as well. They wanted to go ahead and uh, investigate what was going on. The initial response by the city to media requests for emails of the city's response included heavily redacted documents, but today ABC7 obtained clean versions which show the deputy mayor overseeing the migrant situation responded in just over an hour, indicating several issues were new to city officials. The following evening, the Commissioner for Family and Support Services offered a detailed response addressing the concerns, noting an exterminator was being sent for the cockroaches. Hey, wait a second. I thought these are all climate apocalypse types. Yeah, they and, are. Right. So, I mean, um, that's a food source. Every meal you make, every bite you take, every single lunch with a crispy crunch, you will eat that box. Yeah. So... So get on mm. it. Turn you know something bad into something good. Yeah, I'm. Don't let I'm a good crisis it, go to waste. I'm glad it took um, the uh, locals, volunteers, and and that's great that people are volunteering to help in the migrant shelter. I mean, I mean that sincerely. That's fine, wonderful. If you want to help help other people out, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. Um, what bothers me are the politicians, uh, as I've said from the outset of this, as I almost always say. Yeah, you don't. Uh, you don't um, so so. Um, so uh, somebody at the shelter had to notify the alder human in the ward to notify the city that the conditions were unsanitary. And you have to have a 48-hour notice before they let you in. Even if you're an alder human being, even if that's your ward, mm. you can't just walk over there and go in. Well, this is a rankled uh, alder human Byron Sigcho Lopez. Oh, this guy is such a – this guy went – remember when they brought some aldermen down to tour the border? He wore that uh, Palestinian scarf. He doesn't take it off. I even think he wears it to bed at night. He, he, he the, he's never seen without it, Dan. Ever. I was just about to say that. He, I, I'm Dude, watching this crazy. this piece that he's got the kafia on. Always. No, Dan. He never <laughs> takes the darn thing off. And then when it's cold <laughs> out, he puts it above his head, and then he puts it down. And he's always at the city council meetings. And he, you know, fluffes his scarves. Okay. He's so weird. All right, that Byron Sigcho, a la Akbar Lopez, had this to say. <laughs> We see redacted documents like this, and when, and especially in the midst of tragedies and, and conditions in shelters, we gotta act uh, upon the highest level of integrity and transparency. Yeah, there's there's the quality of your older humans in Chicago. In case you needed a refresher, oh hey, uh, Peggy in Chicago, here in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, Peggy. Well, yeah, I just wanted to say it's time to leave Illinois. Um, well, why are you still in Chicago I mean, then if it's time to no, leave? <laughs> there's no money left. To, the cow's empty. The cow's dry. And people that can get out are going to get out. It's uh, <sighs> How are you going to survive? That's an exasperating situation. There's no more money. You know, it's like there's no more money. Oh, and, um, there's always more. Well, They'll always find it. Thanks for the call, Peggy. Uh, and then well, the, you, the people that are hearing... I'm sorry. You, you got to pass that uh, that million dollar uh, the surcharge on million dollar home sales. That's all. Yeah, we're going to vote on that in March. Um, but you're 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 having people handle your money that don't even pay their darn bills. Stacy Davis Gates, five thousand nine hundred in utility bills unpaid. I mean, I don't know who the heck they think that they are. I'll right. tell you what. I'll tell you what. You know, because of her leadership, why don't we put Stacy Davis Gates's personal bills 
into the ask for money for the migrants. Oh, okay. Let's wrap it all up here. <laughs> it's the least we could do. Yeah. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Just a uh, postscript on our conversation about that issue that CPS is having with the 5,000 migrant kids that are in CPS now. Uh, They want the feds to fund it. You know, dear dear CTU leader Stacey Davis-Gates and the half-woman, half-shrew, Head of the AFT, Randy Weingarten, were uh, brought together to call on the feds to fund this. I'm inspired by uh, Naperville City Councilman Josh McGroom, uh, McBroom on this. Why not just ask for donors and make a list? Because certainly the welcoming city, open borders residents of Chicago could dig a little bit deeper for CPS. Couldn't you think, they? You think she'd be more gracious and in inviting and wanting all of them here because they need to fill classrooms. We, we play these schools on the south side, Dan, and there is nobody. Now, now they're combining high schools. Like they'll put that's, one high school on because they're, they're, yeah, they're well, losing students well, that, yeah, at a well, rapid but, rate. Yeah, but that's the good The good news is you've got 5,000 migrant kids now in CPS and more coming. I mean, I don't really understand why if you're losing kids and there's all this space that if you have kids and then. Um, but anyway, that's, that's not material. It is not for us to question a call from dear leader Gates uh, or half woman, half true Weingarten for more federal funds. That's not our job to question that. They are our betters. Mm-hmm. They're in charge. It's their system. It's their call. We are here to do their bidding. And this is why I say rather than waiting for a lethargic federal government to get around to this, call on your fellow residents. This is an opportunity. Again, an opportunity. It's just a list. You don't have to do it, but certainly you, Chicago residents, your friends in the listening audience, the open borders, welcoming city friends that you have, they're not going to let this opportunity pass. They're not going to be accused of not being a welcoming city. They're not going to be accused of letting migrant children wither on the vine when just a few dollars from a few residents could Solve the problem. Dig deep. We'll put a list. Maybe we get like a your name and a brick at a CPS HQ or something like that. Right? 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's be a little bit uh, innovative here. Give people more of an opportunity to participate. All right. Speaking of socialism. Yes. Uh, the uh, World Economic Forum is going on in Davos right now. Right now, oh, as we speak. Yeah. So exciting, Great as it is news. every year. Yes. Talked a bit about it yesterday. You know, the usual uh, gathering of uh, apocalyptic goofs with advanced degrees. and um, Well, thinking that they could tell us what to do, too. Well, you know, the, the, all of the, the, the bureaucrats and functionaries and... Uh, kleptocrats that want wealth and power at your expense. You live in your 15-minute city, you eat your bugs, and you do what you're told. But they did invite this skunk to the garden party to show to show their equanimity. Uh, and uh, Javier Mille did not disappoint, as he has not disappointed since he has been elevated to the president of Argentina. I mean, he... Uh, he laid it out, and he laid them out, and I think the most of the audience was a bit confused as to what to do, so they just sat quietly by while Mille made his way through his 23-minute uh, speech, which you should check out. It's something—I mean, if you're—if you have any sort of working knowledge of economics, if you've read any of von Mises or Hayek or Friedman, there's nothing particularly new here, but just the way that he says things unvarnished to the point— a basics, because it really is largely basic economics. Some of it gets into, you know, a little bit more nuance, but much of what he had to say is economics and economic history. Why the West is in trouble. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others, and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one better place than us, Argentines, to testify to these two points. And he went on to uh, detail socialism's record in, say, the last 120 years or so. And again, he's doing this before a collection of the leading socialists of the world, at least the Western world. It's It was rather fun to watch. It should never be forgotten that socialism is always and everywhere an impoverishing phenomenon that has failed in all countries where it's been tried out. It's been a failure economically, socially, culturally, and it also murdered over 100 million human beings. The essential problem in the West today is not just that we need to come to grips with those who, even after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the overwhelming empirical 
evidence continue to advocate for impoverishing socialism. But there's also our own leaders, thinkers, and academics who are relying on a misguided theoretical framework undermine the fundamentals of the system that has given us the greatest expansion of wealth and prosperity in our history. If you don't uh, want to listen to Mile's 23-minute speech, uh, do someone a solid, I, I don't know, like a member of the Chicago Teachers Union, and uh, pass this along. Like just what, maybe a friend of yours who is uh, uh, wooed by the government-centric model that's pursued in Chicago and Illinois. That would be socialism. Um, think it, it, Things couldn't be going better. It's going great. <laughs> Um, or if they are confused as to why things aren't going better, why they're not going great. I mean, remember, Mile wins the presidency, this upstart academic, never held public office before. Sound familiar? Well, Trump right. was an academic, but you get the point, outsider. Never held office before, yeah. And um, he he comes in on a Brexit, Trump-like revolt of working people in Argentina languishing under something like 140% inflation month over month uh, at the end of last year. Yeah, they're heading towards Venezuela. So um, and now... He, he got in there right away and started cutting spending and cutting, you know, non-essential government jobs. He's cutting agencies. Right. <laughs> Departments. Because like 14 or 13 of 22 agencies he's moving. So, um, you know, I... I Offered this commentary in advance of his election. Uh, maybe it was maybe it was right, it was right after his election. But uh, you know, can can Mile save the West? And and by that I mean somebody espousing the ideas that built the West, which just not a lot of people do anymore, including a lot of Republicans in this country, and certainly Republicans in this state. So. I don't know that maybe I find Mile to be more of a breath of fresh air than other people do just because this is all, all basic stuff to me. But in our politics, I don't hear it. I don't hear it enough. I don't hear it offered in the succinct, direct way that Mile offers it. And it's a mistake. I mean, I know there are people that believe the same things he does. They're the Mike Lees of the world and Ted Cruz's and others. Trump, to a certain extent, although I think Mille and Trump would have some disagreement about trade policy. But that's okay. But uh, th th this is important. And, and, and it's also important because it's not coming from the big bad Americans. It's coming from leader of a once wealthy... South American country ravaged by the autocratic policies of Peronistas for so many generations and now turning to turning back, you know, everything old is new again, turning back to the tried and the true free minds and free markets and advocating for free minds and free markets in the West today. That's the revolutionary position. Can you believe it? It is. Mille also offered a pretty nice distillation of what happened after the wall fell. 
and it may, was made clear and should have been made clear to everyone in the West that collectivism, central planning, socialism and communism belonged on the ash heap of history. They should have left it there. So what did the socialists do? Given the dismal failure of collectivist models and the undeniable advances in the free world, socialists were forced to change their agenda. They left behind the class struggle based on the economic system and replaced this with other supposed social conflicts which are just as harmful to life as a community and to economic growth. The first of these new battles was the ridiculous and unnatural fight between man and woman. Libertarianism already provides for equality uh, of the sexes. The uh, cornerstone of our creed says that all humans are created equal, that we all have the same unalienable rights granted by the Creator, including uh, life, freedom, and ownership. All that this radical feminism agenda has led to is greater state intervention to hinder the economic process, giving a job to bureaucrats who have not contributed anything to society. Examples, um, ministries of, of women or international organizations devoted to promoting this agenda. Another conflict presented by socialists is that of humans against nature, claiming that we human beings damage the planet, which should be protected at all costs, even going as far as advocating for population control mechanisms or the bloody um, abortion agenda. Unfortunately, these harmful ideas have taken a strong hold in our society. Neo-Marxists have managed to co-opt the uh, common sense of the Western world, and this they have achieved by appropriating the uh, media, culture, universities, and also international organizations. The latter case is the most serious one, probably, because these are institutions that have enormous influence on political and economic decisions of the countries that make up the multilateral organizations. Fortunately, there's more and more of us who are daring to make our voices heard, because we see that if we don't truly and decisively fight against these ideas, the only possible fate is for us to have increasing levels of state regulation, socialism, poverty, and less freedom, and therefore uh, will be um, having worse standards of living. Key uh, connection he made there. Listen up. You cowardly Republicans and amoral business people, because he's got a message for you, too. When the socialists lost the economic fight, they invented new fights, cultural ones. Did you hear him? They invented cultural ones. And the culture, the cultural fights they invented are the back door to the economics they want the control they desire. So you can't do the I'm only interested in fiscal issues nonsense and, and think you're going to win the day for markets, for free enterprise. The, the dots connecting, I know probably in our audience I'm sort of uh, screaming into the abyss, but... Again, share it with your friends. Share it with your I'm a fiscal conservative, but a social Marxist friends. They don't use that word, but that's what they are. You know what being a social Marxist and a fiscal conservative is? Being a Marxist. When they lost the economic, the competition on economic models, they invented new fights. 
to get to the same place. You can't retreat from those fights. So here's his message to business people. Find your sacks. I would like to leave a message for all business people here and for those who are not here in person but are following from around the world. Do not be intimidated, intimidated either by the political class or by parasites who live off the state. Do not surrender to a political class that only wants to stay in power and retain its privileges. You are social benefactors. You're heroes. You're the creators of the most extraordinary period of prosperity we've ever seen. Let no one tell you that your ambition is immoral. If you make money, it's because you offer a better product at a better price, thereby contributing to general well-being. Do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story. And rest assured that as from today, Argentina is your staunch, unconditional ally. Thank you very much, and long live freedom. Damn it. Long live freedom. Damn it. (laughs) I mean, what a way to exit. The smattering of applause. He made people feel uncomfortable because he was telling the truth. I wish he would have brought his chainsaw with him too, and then ran out into the crowd like a maniac. But um, this this guy is bring that on the campaign trail. Yeah, this guy is great, and for him to stand in front of the world's statists and say the state is the problem, parasites who suck off the government. Yep. Long live Javier Mille. Damn it, <laughs> Frank Arlington Heights here on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning. Um, you know, John Tamney always talks about how markets are so much better because information is provided to people. That is so true. But I think an argument that could work better with people, I know it works in class with kids, they understand it, is that markets with consumers and producers making the decisions through the pricing mechanism, there are more minds at work on economic problems, on the economic problem of scarcity. Command economies, it's central planning. You have a, a committee of bureaucrats just on that aspect al- alone. The fact that you have a limited number of minds working on it in a socialist state and you have all of the minds working on it in a free market, that appeals to people. People can understand that. That, I think, is the best argument. I like that. I like that. That's a good one. I think a moral argument is important, too, but I like that. By the way, the Frank from Arlington Heights, you always catch his uh, in-depth history with Frank from Arlington Heights Tuesdays at uh, 655 so you want to mark that down in your calendar now that we got Frank. All right, thanks for the call as always, Frank. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Before we get to uh, what uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon had to say, uh, there's some new polling out in the uh, primary uh, race in New Hampshire. So uh, I saw Boston Globe, Suffolk University poll had Trump up 16. I think St. Anselm had him up 13. But there's something else about that. I think it was the Anselm poll. If you looked at the uh, crosstabs among self-identified Republicans, Trump was up 40. So remember, New Hampshire is an open primary. Anybody can vote in in either primary, if there was a primary on the other side. But anybody can vote. His point is this. Even if Haley comes close, even if Haley is victorious, the race is over. Because once you get back to Republicans determining who the Republican victor will be in primaries, Trump is lapping, maybe twice lapping uh, Nikki Haley. So and he's uh, destroying DeSantis in New Hampshire. Well, yeah, yeah of I mean, course. I mean, just up. Yeah, those that I mean, it's just it's over. It's over because he's going to win South Carolina. It's it's over. You're right. Uh, all so right. for the better of the party, should they just give up? Give well, up they, the, do, they do what they want. I mean, they do what they want. I'm just relaying the numbers. I mean, I, you, you can campaign as long as you want to campaign. It doesn't bother me. Nikki Haley wants to stay on the trail. If DeSantis wants to stay on the trail. It doesn't bother me. I mean, I have my perspective on whether I think it helps or hurts them. Like in terms of like, is there an understanding of what you're trying to accomplish and is what you're doing in furtherance of of that objective? I'm not seeing it for DeSantis. I see it for Nikki Haley through New Hampshire, but not after. And also, I want to get something off my chest. I just tweeted this out. You were correct about Scott Kirby being a drag queen. Yeah, there's, transvestite. No, there's the no United video CEO of him. Airlines. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, I just tweeted it out. If you can follow at Amy Jacobson and said that you are right. Um, yeah, there's new video of him uh, mocking Lady Gaga, dressed up like Lady Gaga, dancing, and well, I'm sure he's not mocking. I'm sure that's a tribute. I'm oh, it's, whatever. It's Maybe just I mean very he's disturbing. Tri- he's crawling on his belly, and he like I think he really embraces the heels and the short dress. And you were right. Well, that's what transvestites, transvestites do, yeah. as I understand it. Uh, men Ugh. dressing up as women. The, but maybe, I mean, he is a Chicago resident. Maybe he'll take his act to the Baton Club or something. Oh, Baton Club's closed now. Maybe oh, it is? Kit Kat Club. Oh, is there another one? Okay. Well, Kit Kat Club. He could There's got to be there. some place where he yeah. can go perform and maybe have like a United Airlines employees outing. I mean, at least the ones that aren't sidelined because they wouldn't comply with the COVID mandate. I mean, it, it, uh, that's pretty. That, that's a CEO of a airline. That's pretty scary. He yeah. doesn't seem like a serious person, Dan. That's what I'm going to say. 
Yeah, I'm 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 picking up what you're laying. Oh, down. so if you get a chance, look at it. Uh, all right, Jamie Dimon uh, went on the uh, Investotainment Network, CNBC, yesterday. To they're live from Davos because that's where all the cool uh, kids are hanging out. Right? Well, all the the kleptocrats and fund managers and industry titans. You know, that's where. You know, BlackRock's DEI team is hanging out, so that's where you're going to find everybody. Certainly Aaron Ross Sorkin. Anyway, uh, Jamie Dimon is sort of a on-again, off-again Democrat. Uh, he'll get as, about as far right as Nikki Haley. I don't, I don't know that he goes further right than that under any circumstances. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a big banker. He's a mercantilist. As much as these uh, Wall Street guys like to talk about free enterprise, yeah, they're government colluders, which is why you have Treasury secretaries that almost always hail from a big bank, Goldman Sachs in particular, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley. And people listen to them because they have power and money. Um, Jamie, well, yeah, they, they represent a certain perspective. A lot of people have power and money, but they they represent a certain perspective on things. And so a lot of people move in unison with them because of the power and money they have uh, in the industry they're in and at the top of the industry. But also because uh, everybody understands that they're in liege with big government. So it's sort of two worlds. Well, it's the perception that there are two worlds they're in when it's really sort of a hybrid world anyway uh jamie diamond had a has a message for dems and this is sort of like the bill maher message for dems it's like it's not that i support any sort of conservative it's that i want my team to do better that's how i take this you know, and it's sort of the typical corporate. I mean, I know like people get excited about what you're about to hear. Oh, Jamie Dimon said this. Oh, oh, maybe he's maybe he's uh, seen the light. Maybe he's turning around. No, no, no. Bill Maher's not turning around. These other uh, mouthpieces of the left, when they say something that runs afoul of leftist orthodoxy, it doesn't mean that they are having an epiphany. It means they want their side to do better. And in Jamie Dimon's position, he also wants to sound like someone who is, you know, hey, we have to unite the country kind of patter. So anyway, that's my context to this comment. And I just also want to point out, I, I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA, you know, and you, if you travel this country, you know, and the country's unbelievable. We took our bus trip this year and Leslie Picker was on Spokane and Boise and... Bozeman, people are growing. They're hungry to grow. They're innovating. It's, it's everywhere. It's not just Silicon Valley. So we've got this great hand. But when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump, and they think they're voting, and they're basically scapegoating them, that you are like him. Uh, and, but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. Now, if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Yeah. He was right about some of China. I don't, th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when he, yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should always ask the why. 
not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to hate Trump? 75 million of your fellow Americans. It's, I, I agree. It's done quite and, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, not, hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really, like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Jimmy, and, and I do think the economy will affect. And I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six da turnkey dot pro text line. Are you encouraged by Jamie Dimon's words? Uh, that uh, represents um, a real mind shift and a tectonic shift in the political landscape because Jamie Dimon said to the left, "Grow up and be a little bit more respectful of Trump voters." Well, I found it refreshing. I mean, we have been slammed, and especially Trump had the biggest victory in. Iowa caucus history and what did they do they tried to take it away from him and, and made up lies like no this isn't a big deal because half the people didn't vote for him seriously and, and listen to this they are ripping on Iowans calling them white Christians and other names these are white Christians that this is a state that is overrepresented overrepresented by white Christians he voted for a guy who said come Risk your lives for the Grand Wizard. Come in the snow and the sleet, because I am more important than your life. It's that the Trump has in some ways become religion for a certain section of the American electorate, and especially for evangelicals, that it's not about the virtue anymore, it's about the vice that Trump expresses. 18%. So I think we're all sitting here disgusted that they would vote for someone like this. That was the reaction the day after Trump won Iowa. Yeah, from the View and uh, CNN, and Joy Reid, MSNBC, yeah, I and mean, ABC News. What do you expect? I mean, they 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 say the well, same thing. They say the same thing. They say the same thing every cycle. But now we yeah, went from the horrible to crazies this, and Iowa's I, white evangelicals. Yeah. Yes, white Christian people live in Iowa. So what? They have a right to vote. Okay. Right. This is why the Dems removed Iowa from the first mm-hmm. contest because it's. White Christian. They use white Christian as a pejorative. They are white Christians, and there's nothing wrong with being a Christian. There's nothing wrong with being white, although being white isn't a calling card. Being Christian is what represents their values. Uh, Anyway, um, this is what they do. I mean, these are identitarians. These are the. I mean, what? what, It's like, why why even get worked up about it? I'm sick of it. Being demonized, it's just getting really old. Well, because they're uh, running scared now, Dan. Who says who says they're running scared? Uh, Kamala Harris. She was on the View yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I, okay, all right. Can, can we get back to Jamie Dimon? Yes, let's go back to Jamie Dimon. I was encouraged. You didn't. You just think it's why? Why would he even say if if, it, if he didn't mean it? Because civil strife is bad for business. Okay. That's why. Because he wants the Dems to do better. That's why. Because he misunderstands the moment. That's why. And he misunderstands the party to which he largely affiliates. Where this is at. He'll, you know, there's a lot of Louis Philippe's in that party. They'll be the most surprised when it's their turn for the guillotine. They'll have, they will have seen nothing coming. So you'll pardon me if I'm not so excited uh, as the CNBC desk or 
uh, the financial analysts and so forth who think that this was some sort of seismic moment. Ooh, a real talking to from Jamie Dimon to the left. As if they're listening. As if that's where the base of the party to which he largely affiliates is. So now he saunters over to Nikki Haley in the 11th hour because he's got some issues with the party to which he normally affiliates. So he's going to go sort of with a acceptable facsimile of it on the other, uh, technically on the other side. And I'm supposed to be impressed. Jamie Dimon is going to lead us back. If you're looking to Fortune 500 CEOs in this country at this moment, then you're looking in the wrong place. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can text us at six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Robert in Bloomingdale on Chicago's morning answer. Good morning, uh, Barack Obama won Iowa. He beat he beat Mitt Romney in Iowa, and also I think he won the uh, the primary for the Democratic uh, nomination. So uh, I don't know what the problem with Iowa is. I don't know what happened. They elected Barack Obama, and we had. Uh, Butterflies and rainbows all eight years. Well, right. There's, by the way, there's a lot of Trump voters who voted for Obama. They were they were good when they voted for Obama. They became racist hillbillies when they voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. White Christians from well, Iowa. What, <laughs> right. What is unusual about that characterization and that hypocrisy from the left? If you're surprised, you're late to the dance. Marv in Ridgeway, Colorado. Hi. Uh, regarding Jamie Diamond's going on a bus trip through Washington and all the way over to Bozeman, which I'm also up in Montana also, I'm always amazed and a little pissed off that these guys have to just go out in the country to see that these rural people are have real concerns, they're interesting, they're energetic, entrepreneurial, and that they sh- Jamie Diamond should change his mind and his like-minded people, and also that Jamie Dimon and his like-minded people, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jamie Dimon and like-minded people think it's so enlightened when they go to Davos. It's like, come on, man, get get real. Yeah, Marv, you know, because Jamie Dimon was camping out in a trailer at Yosemite when he was making his way up to a big sky country, right? He, he was going to see regular people in Bozeman, Montana. I mean, anybody know what Bozeman, Montana is these days? Los Angeles. I mean, it, right, exactly. I mean, it's, it. it's, it's, you know, thanks for the call, Marv. It's one of these enclaves for the rich and famous these days. Uh, I mean, the rich in I, L.A. And, uh, yeah. yeah. They all yeah. moved to Bozeng Angeles. I finally got out to Sun Valley and Beaver Creek and Aspen. And, and, Breckenridge <laughs> was fine this time of year. And met regular people. And yes. I realized they're not all crazy. Yeah, who was he hanging out with? He was just uh, going antiquing <laughs> in the quaint downtowns. <laughs> I mean, give me a freaking break. That's what I'm talking about. It's such a fraud. Uh, visiting a nice B&B. Good grief. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We'll talk uh, more about this with... uh, 
former acting ICE director Tom Homan, who joins us at the bottom of the 7 o'clock hour. But to give you a chance to weigh in on this, too, there is another bipartisan legislative offering in the direction of a deal on immigration, this time coming from the House. Remember, there's one in the works in the Senate that we talked about earlier in the week. This between Pagliacci Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, and Jim Langford, Republican from Oklahoma. That one would increase green cards by 50000 a year, okay. work permits for adult children of H-1B visa holders, immediate work permits to every illegal alien released from custody, so paroled, that's the term, taxpayer-funded lawyers to certain unaccompanied and mentally incompetent aliens, oh 5,000 migrants per day allowed into the U.S. Heck no. And then restricting parole for those who enter without authorization between ports of entry. That's what has been reported as the top lines from this Schumer-Lankford, this forthcoming Schumer-Lankford bill. Okay, over on the House side, our friend Brett Baer caught up with uh, two legislators, two ladies of the House. Uh, One is... um, Somebody uh, many people may be familiar with because she uh, would appear occasionally on Tucker Carlson's show when he was on Fox. And, uh, you know, they get into it pretty good because they clearly have different views on what border security policy should look like. And, And also, importantly, this is an important discussion of it always, the sequencing. We can't do everything at once. There are some things that we can do to build trust on on this issue mainly trust with the American people. I'm not even talking about Republican Democrats, but trust with the American people to show that the federal government is capable of doing something sensible to bring this along to a place where maybe some reasonable compromises can be made. So anyway, uh, I don't think the Bipartisan Dignity Act is the ticket. This is Representative Maria Gonzalez. She's the one that used to be on Tucker occasionally. They get into it. She's a Republican from Florida. And her colleague in this Dignity Act is Hillary Scholten, who is a uh, lawyer and a Dem from Michigan. A bear, Brett Bear, intros the broad strokes of this offering and then turns it over to uh, Maria Gonzalez. Act $25 billion to secure the border and catch and release, expedite asylum processing, criminal background checks, restitution, mandatory E-Verify for employment, year-round H-2A farm ranch worker visas. Congresswoman Salazar, why is this important and how does it track differently than what's happening up there? It's very important because it's the only bill in Congress that is bipartisan. And not only that, it accomplishes exactly what the country needs to seal the border, secure the border, and once that is done, once that border is secured, then we look back and we give some type of dignity to those people who have been here for more than five years who are contributing with your economy. Like my colleague said, this is, dignity is not a, an immigration reform law. This is a national security, it's an economic bill, because you know that the business, business sector is saying we need hands. Those hands are here. We just need to legalize them. I'm not talking about citizenship. I'm talking about dignity, not amnesty, dignity. This bill has uh, the only bipartisan support. I just want to underscore that. You know, there have been a number of resolutions, a number of bills put forward. This is the only bipartisan bill in Congress right now. 
Right. So that's important to distinguish. Congresswoman Salazar, this is different from H.R. 2, which did pass the House. Is not. Is dignity has the same provisions as H.R. 2. It's, we do because H.R. 2 is basically secure the border and end catch and release. And we're ending catch and release with something called humanitarian centers. I've worked on immigration issues as an attorney. Humanitarian centers. centers. Uh, dignity. Um, I think the uh, we're going to get hung up on uh, most particular twenty five billion to fully secure the border. I mean, you know, I don't know what's contained in that twenty five billion, but I think you'll hear Tom Holman tell us next hour what he said before, which is this whole uh, argument about money for the border is a false front by big spenders in in both parties in D.C. to appear to be doing something when it's a policy change, not a resource issue. That's required. Policy changes, plural, I should say. It's policy changes that should be prioritized, not throwing more money at the problem for this personnel or for that structure. Policy changes with respect to remain in Mexico, safe third country, um, the uh, end of catch and release. Yes. But the problem is you do the ending of catch and release at the same time you're providing a pathway to permanent legal residency for people who've been in this country illegally for five years. So uh, that is clearly markedly different than what you're hearing from, well, Republican presidential candidates, notably Trump and DeSantis, in terms of the uh, significant deportation proceedings that will need to be initiated to remove all of the gotaways uh, to the extent that they can be located particularly, I would say, in rank order priority of those that, you know, basic common sense here. Uh, ha there are terrorist concerns about they're convicted criminals, those sorts of things. And then work your way down from highest priority to lowest priority in a sensible way, since you can't do everything at once. But but the, the problem and this is like typical of a politician like Gonzalez. Forget the Democrat for a second. We're going to do everything because the Democrats say it's broken. And as a great man once said, it's not broken, it's fixed. That was me. I was talking about Illinois, but it applies here, too. They want this situation at the border that we have. They want it. If they didn't want it, then Joe Biden would do something about it. There's a lot he can do by executive fiat. Right. But he's this is what too. they want. It's what the sanctuary city mayors and governors want. I keep trying to drive this point home. They're complaining about money. They're not complaining about people in this country illegally. Right. It, it, I don't think that's clear to everybody. Well, and, it's certainly, and, and, and Maria Gonzalez isn't making it any more clear when she's talking about money and she wants to do some grand bargain. There's no grand bargain. There's no grand bargain. At least that should be the position of Republicans. There are these policy changes that must be made as an opener for discussions about other things. Resource, resources at the border, structures, immigration judges, uh, uh, work, guest worker programs. All that stuff is off the table. I'm, I'm, I refuse to talk about it. This is, should be Speaker Johnson's position. Okay. Should be McConnell's position, too. Should be the Republican Party's position. We're not doing it. You're, it's a false argument it's a misdirection play to oh we're we're to we're going to uh, finance 2,000 more border agents and the republicans are against it pound sand not a resource issue 
Not a personnel issue. It's a policy issue. And until these specific policies are exacted, there is nothing to talk about. And we'll take this around to the country, and we'll explain it over and over again, and we'll speak with one voice on the topic, and we'll make it as crystal clear as it can be. They want this chaos. They want people coming into this country illegally with uh, no stop. And then we'll argue about the resources after the fact. That's always their game. Destroy and then figure out how to paper over the destruction with money. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Uh, John in Florence, Wisconsin. Yeah, creative destruction. Um, hey, Dan, you two two things. You're uh, it's not broken; it's fixed. Oh yeah, it's fixed, all right. Um, and I I would like to think that with the uh, the doubling down and death of legacy media, people are figuring it out. Um, President Trump or the clown in the uh, in the Oval Office right now. You pick up the phone. You call down to the president of Mexico. Uh, you say, if you don't put a hold on your end of this, we will start restricting the $60 billion in money that your nationals send back into Mexico every year. Well, we'll yeah. clamp that down on all these transfers. That's what Trump did instead of putting everything behind the wall to his credit. The the second thing is that that should be the na- <clears throat> excuse me the national campaign is it doesn't take a wall it takes policy and all these people can, Dan they're not getaways and they're not runaways and they're Ill- not illegal the reason that there's so many people being processed is you step up here you uh, wait in line you get your information taken we'll give you a card now you get twenty two hundred a month. Plus you get your phone, plus you get some health care, plus you get housing, plus you get vouchers. I hate all four of my grandparents were immigrants. Yeah. All four of my, you know, and I I have nothing against it, all right? But when you're rolling in, if they're saying 12, 14 million, that's the population of Chicago and DuPage County. We can't afford it. It's more, if we uh, could afford it, it's, it's not good for the culture. Well, I Thanks. would say twenty twenty five. Thanks that- for the call, John. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's, it's the I mean, it's the size of the population of New York State. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, on the on the the other, I mean, the other thing too, and this is it was brought up in a here committee hearing yesterday. I mean, the drug trafficking, the human trafficking. The um, it, with all these parolees, then you're eligible for a work visa for up to two years, too. And 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 Sounds and like you, a great you, gig if you can get it <laughs> and, and you want to talk about the the um, and by the way, remit, you know, uh, DeSantis was talking about uh, going after remittances on the uh, on the campaign trail is talking about it. Um, that's one aspect. But you understand, I mean, if Biden wanted to do that with AMLO, he can he should. He's not. Go- he he won't. He's not. And and as we talked about earlier in the week, Amlo is demanding unbelievable concessions in 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 uh, uh, with an offer of you know, generically helping to slow the tide of migrants making 
their way through Mexico to our southern border. I mean, the 20 billion and you're going to make 10 million uh, uh, Hispanic uh, Hispanics in this country, Latinos in this country legal and all these sort of concessions. So what does that tell you about what AMLO thinks the relationship is between uh, him and Biden? Well, who, who does who has who over a barrel, do they think? So what does that say about what it, Biden is purposefully doing? If the Mexican president can figure it out, how can how can we how can Republican some Republican members of Congress? By the way, in terms of how serious these people are, you know, oh, compromise, bipartisan compromise, you know, get, get together around a table and hash out, roll up your sleeves and all this other silliness. Listen to this clown. Maxwell Frost. He's a Democrat congressman from Where? from Orlando area from Florida. To my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, let's be honest with immigrants who deserve better than what you're offering them. Don't welcome immigrants if you plan to reject them. If you keep pushing your bigoted H.R. 2 bill, then also pass this bill. I've taken the liberty of drafting it for you. It removes the Statue of Liberty, our largest symbol that tells people to come here. This is who you are, removing the fabric of America. So I want to know which Republican who supports and voted for H.R. 2 will introduce this bill. You see what you're dealing an with? absolute tool. If you, if you don't support open borders, then uh, you might, you, well, number one, you're a racist. And then number two, we might as well just remove the Statue of Liberty. And, 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 and you're, supposed adult, to, you're supposed to achieve some sort of a reasonable middle ground with uh, somebody like Maxwell Frost. Give me a break. I just won't forget what Jerry Nadler said last week. You know, well, we need immigrants because our birthing rates are low. Well, do you want to know why our birthing rates are low? I mean, they've been low, what, down 23% from 2007 to 2022? Um, because you, the Democrats, told people not to have multiple children. I mean, we didn't have a one-child policy, obviously, like China. But remember, they would kept saying to us, you know, don't have too many children because of the climate. Save the environment. Remember how they supported the abortion of 65 million children since Roe? That, too. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Corey and Woodlawn. Uh, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. I'm, I'm one million percent against the way this wave is coming into the country. I'm not for it at all. I moonlight as a realtor on the weekend for over 20 years, and I was trying to sell a house in Park Forest. The property was only worth 45000 The taxes were 10000 on this specific piece of property. <laughs> oh How much is this property worth if a giant housing migrant building is behind your home? These people are robbing you of your wealth in front of your face to just satisfy their donors. This is ridiculous. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Corey. Absolutely. $45,000 home and your property taxes are $10,000. That home is worth nothing. Yeah, I know. My friend had a home there, too. His mom passed away when he just turned in the keys. Just destroy it. Like, I can't right. sell it. It's not even worth it. I'm done with it destroy i mean i don't they know how many times you have to have the land. conversation about that yeah absolutely chicago democrats oh. black white latino and all of them destroyed majority minority communities throughout chicago southland oh, decimated i mean go go down there and see it for yourself folks it is bad and it just and they it's just pile on because they are still have that loyal constituency just remarkable. Uh, Ralph and Rantoul. 
Yeah, good morning. Remember, a cultural Marxist is still a Marxist. So this 5,000 number is not some magical pull-out-of-the-hat number. Biden and the Democrats are getting sensitive a little bit to the fact that people are very upset about these outrageous, out-of-control, illegal immigrant numbers, 12, 14,000 a day. So this 5,000 number a day, the Biden administration recently went down to Mexico and had this secret powwow with AMLO and his narco crew. And the the 5,000 number is kind of this, well, we think we can, Mexico saying, we think we can stem the flow a little bit. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to artificially restrict the flow, put all these people in transport inside Mexico. They're putting essentially illegal immigrant camps, holding facilities in Tapachula, Mexico, where they're just, it's a buffer, okay? It, they're just buffering them there. The intent is to artificially demonstrate the slow, the slowing of the flow to this ridiculous number, which is still too high because 5,000 illegal immigrants a day is 5,000 illegal immigrants too many. And once the Democrats are able to lull and fake the moron Americans who aren't paying attention that Biden and his corrupt crew are actually making systemic border changes, which they are not, then that flow, the gates are going to be open and all of those buffer centers in Tapachula, Mexico, are just going to redirect all of that back north assuming that the Democrats can fool enough people and steal another election. Todd Benzman from the Center for Immigrant uh, Studies, CIS, has documented this. There's boots on the ground watching the people in Mexico working this policy out. And Langford is just another Oklahoma useful idiot working with the corrupt likes of Schumer, who we already know is a corrupt school to deceive people because all the Democrats care about is winning the next election through deception, lies, theft, whatever it takes. It's about power. This is not about money. It's not about budget. It's Thanks for the call, Ralph. Well, here's, here's the thing about that, too. Um, even if uh, Obrador was on the up and up, and I'm not disputing what Ralph was describing, but even just taking that, uh, setting that aside, he, he, he's going to make a good faith effort. This is what he called for, again, just to repeat, in a press conference, he publicly approve a plan that deploys $20 billion to Latin America and Caribbean countries, suspend the U.S. blockade of Cuba, remove all sanctions against Venezuela, grant at least 10 million Hispanics living in the United States the right to remain and work legally. That's in exchange for a good faith effort, which, as Ralph from Rantoul was pointing out, you're not going to get. But even if you were going to get it, it's a ridiculous deal. And AMLO thinks he can make it. What does that tell you about what he knows about the Biden administration? Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. So 
top of the morning, Dan and Amy, listening to uh, that uh, weather forecast. Uh, did you see that uh, video of the uh, steam devil? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was cool. so cold out that the whole, uh, all of Lake Michigan and the river, there was just steam rolling off of it. it yeah. Very it, sinister. It's, it's vapor swirling above the water, this sort of natural phenomenon that I guess is relatively rare called the steam devil. Oh, I love a steam devil. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that could phrase, be Scott Kirby's new drag name, Steam I, Devil. I like it. I was going to say that phrase has a lot of applications we'll have to get to yes. perhaps later on in the show. Maybe open my Friday tomorrow. Oh, yes, yes. Chicago Steam Devil. And I'll bring you a story, too, tomorrow. Uh, what that conjures up. Uh, all right. We'll look forward to your relationship with the Kirbys. Uh, it is uh, National School Choice Week. and uh, What's Stacey Davis Gates doing to celebrate it? Uh, she's celebrating killing the tax credit scholarship program in Illinois. While well, she sends her son to a private school. The National School Choice Awareness Foundation released some recent survey results. 72% of parents said they, this is a national survey, 72% of parents surveyed said they'd considered new schools in the last year. That's up from 52% just a couple of years ago. So demand for school choice is surging, as we sort of knew, but this quantifies it. In 2023, 20 states, last year, 20 states expanded school choice. And, of course, Illinois killed their school choice program. Hmm. Uh, two-thirds of parents, 64% of parents say they wish they had more information about education options for their children. Only 29% of parents surveyed, fewer than one in three, said the same type of school works well for all the children in their home. So there's where the union members came down, probably. That's their representation in the survey. So school choice is the new norm, is the point. And uh, programs that are existing are expanding. I mean, except in Illinois. And um, and there's impetus for uh, more uh, school choice offerings in states that don't have them because of the success that states that do have them are enjoying. And parents talk about it and word gets around. And, you know, very interesting, too, in this election year, as we've talked about a couple times now, the the four key swing states, now maybe the map expands, but starting this cycle, we were looking at Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Arizona. In all those states, school choice is a big issue at the local level, and it may make for amplifying school choice as a national issue in a way that it hasn't in previous federal elections because Katie Hobbs is attacking the school choice program in Arizona. Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, has been an impediment to expanding school choice there. Uh, Brian Kemp is trying to expand school choice. And in Wisconsin, even though they have uh, a dumb governor who is a teacher's union flack, they don't want to touch it. Too popular. Dems in Wisconsin aren't touching it. Very interesting times. Uh, For more on this in uh, celebration of this school choice week... We're pleased to be joined by Ian Rowe. Again, Ian Rowe is uh, founder of the Vertex Partnership Academies, which is a network of character-based international baccalaureate high schools in the Bronx. Senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and at the Woodson Center. He's also the author of the book Agency. And he's coming to town this coming Monday. So Monday, January 22nd, this Monday, 6.30 p.m. And he'll be at Loyola Academy in Wilmette. That's an event sponsored by Nutrier Neighbors. You can get information, sign up, uh, register for tickets and all that stuff, uh, org, and there's an event, Eventbrite page for the event as well. So Monday, 6.30 p.m., 
Loyola Academy in Wilmette. We'll talk a little bit more about Loyola later, too. Big news, Loyola Academy in Wilmette. Uh, but anyway, now we talk to Ian Rowe. Ian, thanks for joining us, as always. Appreciate it. Uh, so great to hear you. I, I always seem to come uh, on your show when more madness is happening in <laughs> Chicago and Illinois. Well, and it's a well, daily a, occurrence. Yeah, it's sure, a permanent yes. condition. Yeah. Um, so mean, while the rest of, while the rest of the country is advancing, creating more opportunities for school choice to create great opportunities for kids, especially low income kids, somehow Illinois and Chicago are going in reverse. Well, let, let's let's uh, get your perspective on this, too, because you're, you're not just a theoretician or a policy guy. You're also a practitioner with the uh, the, the uh, charter schools you have in the Bronx that you started. So if you were in uh, if you were a private school or charter school operator in Chicago or in Illinois against the backdrop of the tax credit scholarship program being repealed and school choice retreating in this state. What would you do? What advice do you have for your colleagues in Chicago and Illinois? Yeah. So as you say, I'm not just a theoretical. I'm a practitioner. I've run public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx since 2010. I now run, as you said, International Baccalaureate High School. And we faced a very similar challenge uh, back in 2013, you know, after Mayor Bloomberg had really opened the doors to create more school choice because of his initiatives, we had something close to 250 charter schools open in New York City. It was really incredible. But when the mayor, Bill de Blasio, was campaigning, he said basically he was going to shut down choice. He was going to take uh, away the right of public school students and charter schools to be in public school space. He was going to take away that right by charging uh, charter schools money. And it was really an existential threat to the sector. And so the, the challenge you're facing now in Chicago and Illinois, or, you know, what are we going to do in the face of elected officials um, trying to strip away options for the, the most vulnerable population? What we decided to do is we had to mobilize parents. Mm. You know, in, in October of 2013, we mobilized nearly 13,000 family members to march across the Brooklyn Bridge. It was almost all exclusively low-income black and hispanic families who were saying and by the way generally uh parents who would typically support someone like a bill de blasio democratic mayor but they said don't do this all we want is a shot for our kids whatever structural barriers we may have faced these schools are providing the promise to our kids in communities where the normal schools, the traditional district schools, have single-digit proficiency rates. So it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. Because the elected officials can't say no to actual parents. You know, the ones that these guys are like, we stand for the poor, we stand for, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yet they're shutting down <laughs> the, the singular opportunity that drives opportunity in our country. So we did that. We had 13,000 family members march across the Brooklyn Bridge. And even in the face of that, candidate de Blasio said, no, no, I'm still going to move forward with my plan. He went forward. And when he actually won, we then took 11,000 family members to Albany in seven degree weather to petition the state. And that's when we gained the power. We're in New York State at that time. The governor, Cuomo at the time, said, you know what, I am with you. And so they, the state legislature negated 
this idea that the city could uh, basically kick uh, charter schools out of public school space and actually even created a subsidy so that uh, if a charter school were growing, it could get uh, public dollars to subsidize private space if real estate were a constraint. So that's something I would certainly uh, look to do, and I'd certainly love to help. Mobilizing parents, because the one thing these elected officials can't do is look uh, a parent in the eye, a 22-year-old mom who may have a five-year-old kid, whatever decisions she may have made in her own life, the singular thing she wants to do is create opportunity for her child. And if historically the school in her district has only had 12% of kids reading at grade level. I want that elected official to look in the face of thousands of those faces, primarily low-income Black and Hispanic families, and tell them that I'm going to restrict your opportunity. And by the way, meanwhile, my kid is going to go to the, you know, the, the good private school or public right. school in my neighborhood. That's the hypocrisy that we have to challenge. But a lot of Illinoisans, I mean, they go along, they get along. So, I mean, this is... Like David versus Goliath. I mean, how are you going to really motivate them to mobilize? Convince parents that they're actually the Goliath in this okay. situation. What we said to our parents was that you actually have the power. Don't give away your power. When you come together and have a collective voice, you are unstoppable. And when we, when we tell that to people who, by the way, feel pretty powerless, in a system where they constantly feel like everything is rigged against them. Here, we're saying, no, 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 we're with you. Come with us. Let's mobilize. It was incredible. You know, I just saw this story from Wirepoint. And by the way, Wirepoint is like an Illinois treasure. I can't wait to you know, be there on Monday and talk to Ted Dabrowski. They just produce such incredibly uh, important information about Chicago and Illinois schools. But I just saw the story. In the name of equity, Chicago looks to close schools with top-performing Black and Hispanic students. You know, somehow they want to move away from school choice. These are magnet schools where 70 to 80 to 90 percent plus of Black and Hispanic school students are performing math and reading at the highest level. And somehow in this scheme, those schools would be shut down. That's what you got to we got to go to those parents and say, there are people that want to take this away from you. And we found that to be a highly effective strategy to get parents to realize what's under threat. There's something else I wonder, get your reaction to. So uh, way back when there was a state senator named James Meeks, who was a pastor of a mega church on the south side. And, you know, there was a school, public school funding fight and equity and public school funding. You know, the Nutrier spends X on the North Shore and the South Side High School spend Y and we need to close that gap. So he he bust a bunch of uh, black kids, families up to Nutrier to make the point, sort of a public spectacle type of thing. Now, that was just, you know, fighting over public dollars and the distribution. It wasn't system change, which is what we're talking about here. But I wonder if he maybe have been on to something. And by... That I mean, yes, uh, activating the families, yes, telling the stories about them and their children and their prospects and the success they're having and don't take their scholarships away. And we did a terrible job of that in Illinois, did a terrible job. 
uh, we allowed uh, the politicians to beat people up in a back alley. Oh, yeah, send them three hours south of Chicago to Springfield, and that really put the pressure on them. The pressure has to happen in the media market. The pressure has to happen here. But it yeah. can't just be yeah. it can't just be disproportionately the disproportionately minority families that are the beneficiaries, although they need to be the lead and their kids in particular. But also, I mean, you're going to be on the North Shore on Monday night. And, you know, one of the challenges to these rich honkies in leftist on rich enclaves like Wilmette and Winnetka and Glencoe and Highland Park and in the western burbs around here, I won't rattle them off, and near west burbs, is to say, you know, um, what are you doing? I mean, for somebody like you to say, what are you doing? You know, you, you listen to a... a uh, a race hustling ignoramus like Al Sharpton, these shakedown artists, and you think that's representative of the black community, or and and yeah. politicians in the Latino community that do the same thing? You think this? Is, you think you're doing something positive? Um, you know, we need like the the Bob Woodsons and the Shelby Steels and the Ian Rose and all the the intellectual heft of pro school choice black leaders, academics, intellectuals, Glenn Lowry and John McCorder and so many more to say. Who the hell do you think you are? Yep. Um, you're listening to the wrong people. And let me tell you something. If you don't get on board for providing the same options for families on the south and west sides of the city or in middle and working in income suburbs that you have, then we're going to have a problem with you. So you don't you like to just, you know, walk away and, uh, you know, hope nobody sees you and just act out of convenience no, we're we're coming for you, and we're going to make a spectacle out of you. What do you think about that? Well, I'm coming to Loyola on Monday. <laughs> no, this is the whole point. And, you know, and again, the names you just listed off are my heroes: Shelby Steele, Bob Woodson, Glenn Lowry. I love them all. They are an inspiration to me. The thing about me is, I run schools too. Like, I, yeah, exactly. I, I know, I know what this means to people, particularly low-income people. We are the only shot for their kids. Like, I know that. I see it every single day in the Bronx. So when I see stories about, you know, Chicago wants to close the top performing schools, it's like this idiotic ideology. Like, if everyone can have it, then no one can. Exactly. No one can have it. That is, that, that's, it's, if you're talking about systemic discrimination, systemic bias, that's what it is. And so we just need to speak truth. And I, I cannot underscore enough, we got to get more families, and by the way, of all races, to take on this fight. The hypocritical, virtue signaling, you know, more progressive ideology, all that stuff is nonsense. And it's ultimately harmful to kids. So I try to, you know, come to these audiences and say, whatever you've been listening to, here is the real impact on children. I run schools in a district in which only 7% of kids graduate from high school ready for college. That means when, you know, you know, the 2,000 or so kids in District 12 that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 7% graduate from high school ready for college. That means they either, when they started ninth grade, they dropped out somewhere along the way, or they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading without remediation if they were to go to college. That is a crime, but that is the reality. And when you sentence kids to have to go to those schools because you're removing school choice, that is as perniciously 
racist, discriminatory as whatever claims that you think you're generally making um, in your more virtue signaling mode. Well, the other thing, since you're going to be up on the North Shore, is to tell them to uh, uh, bring in the Woodson uh, Black History and Character Curriculum at Nutrier and everywhere else. Uh, profile that for the uh, you know the the honky high schools like Nutrier uh, too. I mean, <laughs> well, the, yeah, right, right. The reason I love people like Bob Woodson, who you know, it's not just about talk; it's about action. You know, when the New York Times 1619 Project put out their drivel. Um, about America as a permanently racist society, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we, we wrote essays against that, but we also said, you know what, let's create a curriculum, an empowering alternative. And that's what we did. And it, it, this curriculum, it's free of charge. It's now been downloaded, I think, 140,000 times by teachers in all 50 states who are looking for inspiring stories um, that tell the more complete telling of the African-American experience in the United States. And it's not so it's not only for Black History Month. It's, it's, it's storytelling, uh, universal stories of triumph over adversity, integrity, agency, courage, stories that would be inspiring um, to any kid of any race. That's what we mean. We, we who are trying to put forth empowering alternatives, we have to mobilize those who think that they're doing the right thing, who, who think listening to Al Sharpton is the right thing to do. It's not. There are those of us who are running schools who see the impact every day of giving parents the power to choose a great school for their kids. He is Ian Rowe, running schools, not running his mouth like uh, so many others. Uh, he is uh, the founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a network of charter, excuse me, character-based international baccalaureate high schools in the Bronx, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and at the Woodson Center. His book is entitled Agency. Pick it up and go see him Monday, this coming Monday, January 22nd, Loyola Academy at the uh, McGrath Family Performing Arts Center, 6.30 p.m., org for information to get uh, tickets to the event on Monday at 6.30 at Loyola Academy. Ian Rowe, thanks, as always, for joining us. Don't be meek on the North Shore on Monday. <laughs> for bring bring the artillery on Monday, all right? Bring the heat. Bring the heat. Yes. Bring the heat. Yes. Ian well, Rowe, thank you. Is, I'm, I'm, beauty is I'm not alone. There are millions of parents who simply want a, a shot for their kids. I always take that with me. Thank you so much. And he joined us. Uh, have a great event. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, fresh off of uh, the big guys' speeches at Valley Forge uh, a week ago Friday and then Charleston last week, uh, Kamala Harris, Reparation, uh, Reparation H, that is, and uh, the Ava Perone of East Lansing, Gretchen Whitmer, have been dispatched to continue flogging Trump supporters. Trump demonizing Trump supporters. Trump yes. supporters. Kamala Harris talking to uh, 
fellow man-hating shrews on The View yesterday. And what are you going to do to stop the crazies? I am scared as heck. <laughs> Play scared. Which is why I'm traveling our country. You know, there's an old saying that there are only two ways to run for office. Either without an opponent or scared. So on all of those points, yes, we should all be scared. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as we know, and certainly this is a, a table of very powerful women. Oh, very powerful. We don't run away from something when we're scared. We fight back against it. The seals clap. Uh, Ava Perone of East Lansing yeah. uh, on with that blonde bombshell, Joy Reid. Oh, that's right. Donald Trump still has a, a grip on the Republican Party. He and his MAGA extremists are the are the, the standard bearers for today's Republican Party. And it's not reflective of who we are as a nation. It's not reflective of where we need to be headed as a country as we think about our standing globally. Mm -hmm. Get used to that. You're going to hear a lot of it. that and nothing but that from now until November. The only possible addition will be if they're able to get one of these uh, corrupt federal and state prosecutors to uh, uh, you know, to to get to get one of the cases they've brought to uh, the studio audience in the View, masquerading as juries in Atlanta and D.C. and Manhattan, uh, get a conviction, and then they'll add convicted felon to the litany of abuses. But it's always going to be MAGA and MAG extremists. It's always going to be Trump and the crazies. Because this is about annihilation of dissent. That's what this campaign is about. We'll develop that more perhaps a, a bit later. But this is so much more than just about uh, this is the path that uh, Biden has to pursue because it's the only path available to him. And it's high risk, say the pundits and so on and so forth. Completely missing it, in my view. For more on all this, please be joined by Amber Duke, nay Athey. Oh, somebody got married. Uh, she is the Spectator's Washington editor. She's also the author of the book, The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. Amber, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to be back. Congratulations on your marriage, I guess. Right. I, I didn't get an Thank invite. You, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. I must have got too. lost in the mail. Yes, yeah. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> well, let me know where you're registered. Um, all right. So let, let's talk a little bit about Trump before we talk about um, uh, the response from a team Biden. Um, you had an interesting piece about um, the uh, veeps, the potential veeps, at least the uh, potential female veeps. Uh, of course, Trump has said that he's made his selection already and there's rumors going in a lot of different directions, understandably and desirably. Uh, that was, I think, the point. Um, but some of the uh, women you think are on the short list. And if you have any uh, particular perspective on who you think, uh, if it is one of them, it would be. Right. So some of the names that have been floated around over the past, honestly, couple of years include Carrie Lake, who's running for Arizona governor, Elise Stefanik, who is the House conference chair that replaced uh, defector Liz Cheney. There's Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor of Arkansas. Um, some people have mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. But actually, there's an article that came out yesterday at NBC News that claims that Trump is seriously considering Elise Stefanik and has been raving privately about her loyalty. Now, I, I think it, loyalty would be part of the pick for him, but um, 
I think the, the other part of it is that Trump kind of needs the Pence effect, which is he needs a little bit of a moderating factor, but still someone who's very conservative. You kind of want to marry the America first ideology with a more traditional politician, which is where I think someone like Elise Stefanik or Sarah Huckabee Sanders would check both of those boxes. What about Christy Noem, governor of South Dakota? That's right. I can't believe I didn't mention her. She is another um, one that has been rumored, in, in especially in recent days, to be in the running, um, especially in the top three or four. She uh, campaigned with Trump on uh, the trail in Iowa when Kim Reynolds, the actual Iowa governor, had decided to endorse DeSantis. Um, so she has definitely passed the loyalty test. I will say that there are, are a few members of Trump's base that are a little skeptical of Christy Nome because she had vetoed that bill a couple of years back that would yeah. have banned biological men from competing in women's sports. And her explanation for it was very unsatisfying. She essentially said that the NCAA would pull tournaments from South Dakota, and so there was an economic consideration involved. So I do think if he chooses her, that she might have to work a little bit to earn some trust back. Yeah, I, the Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, it's interesting. She hasn't gotten as much chatter as you might expect, considering she was his uh, spokes, spokesperson and then, of course, uh, now the governor of Arkansas. So she's in an executive position, too, and she's amassing a, a good conservative reform record. And, um, and you know, it maybe has a little bit more gravitas. I mean, I, I know Stefanik's smart, but she's, you know, definitely on the younger side. I mean, Sarah Huckabee Sanders isn't that much older, but, you know, I think Stefanik's like 40. Um, and I think there is something to this suggestion that uh, the VP matters for Trump, who would be over 80 if he finished, you know, at the end of a term, if he's elected. Um, and, you know, who's waiting in the wings next. And, you know, I'm not sure the people would get would be as comfortable with Stefanik saying that's a future president as maybe they would be Sanders. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. That's why I think Sanders is maybe a little bit more of a dark horse in this race, in this competition to be Trump's beat. Um, I agree. Stefanik is is quite young. Um, I think she still has a lot to prove. And vice president is not really the position to do that. That's kind of where you go after you've sort of captured all of your accolades. Um, the other benefit to Sarah Sanders, of course, is that she's worked in a White House administration. She knows how things run. She knows as well the depths of depravity that, frankly, the media and the Democrats will go to to discredit Republicans, specifically Donald Trump. She's been in that environment. She's battle-tested. So I think she would be much more prepared for that role than maybe Elise Stefanik. Well, but Elise Stefanik, of course, had this viral moment recently, right, in Congress where she was yeah. grilling these university presidents and ended up getting two of them to resign. Yeah, but I mean, but but thinking of back about Pence and the, the you know comparison can, contrast and styles. So I mean, Huckabee Sanders is also very room temperature, you know, and which I think is a good thing, particularly in contrast to Trump. Um, and so I, you know, you're not going to get the um, rhetorical excesses from uh, Sarah Sanders, in part because of the battle testing she had before the D.C. press corps as spokesman. You're not going to get the same so maybe rhetorical excesses, sort of the Trumpian rhetoric from her that you get maybe from a Carrie Lake and to some extent from a Stefanik. 
Yeah, I think that's true. She's she's on message 100%. And one of the benefits of Pence um, that you alluded to is that he was sort of able to let Trump have his moment. He was more than happy to kind of be in the background and go out and, and speak to certain voting groups when it made sense. And he was able to go out and sell the president's message in a way that maybe was more palatable to people who are not diehard MAGA people. Um, and I think Sarah Sanders could do that. Look, I covered the White House when she was press secretary for a few months, and she's a very impressive woman. Yeah. She knows how to handle that podium. I have no doubt that she would do an equally uh, impressive job on the campaign trail. But what about, I mean, deep down in my heart, I still think that he's going to ch- choose Nikki Haley. No. I don't think that's happening, no. I mean, so I, I think a month ago you might have been right, but things have changed a lot since then. Um, first of all, she's attacking Trump way more aggressively than she did at the beginning of her campaign. And Trump's been attacking her, right? Which doesn't always mean everything because he is, of course, more than happy to accept endorsements from people that he's attacked in the past. But his son, Donald Trump Jr., I think kind of put the nail in the coffin when the rumor was floating that Nikki Haley would be chosen People, of course, are very upset by this because she's very neoconservative. And Donald Trump Jr. said, don't worry, I'm going to make sure that it's not her. Um, and, I, and so I think that was it. Um, Trump is a lot of things. I don't think that he would openly and publicly basically uh, backstab his son like that and make him look like an idiot. Um, what do you th- uh, so going back to uh, the um, uh, fear mongering that is being pitched by uh well, Team Biden, uh, that uh, the the MAGA dictatorship or save our democracy, that's the choice in, in November. Um, how do you think that plays for the audience that they're uh, seeking? I think what they're trying to do there is they're trying to get the sort of neurotic wine mom or wine aunt that um, maybe is a little less than pleased with Trump's rhetoric and it maybe is even a little bit scared by him, and, and they're going to play into that. But this is also what you do when you don't have any accomplishments to run on, right? This is a strategy that is all about ad hominem as opposed to actually dealing with the policy differences that made the country a much better place when Trump was in office just a few short years ago. And this strategy was first rolled out by the media actually a few weeks ago. You had The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times all running these feature articles claiming that Trump's second term was going to be more radical than ever, that he was going to be a dictator. There was a New Yorker cover that showed him basically a Nazi regalia doing a, a little Hitler march. And now there's, uh, there's reports that people on the Biden campaign, as well as outside Democratic strategists, are trying to get Biden to go even further in his comparisons of Trump to Hitler They want him to not just compare the rhetoric, but to compare Trump himself. So I would expect that this is only going to get nastier and darker the closer Trump gets to the nomination. She is Amber Duke, the Spectator's Washington editor. She's the author of the book, The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. Amber, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So there's this big confab with uh, congressional leaders and Biden at the White House to talk about the border and uh, the, you know, sort of uh, like the Rashomon effect, a bunch of eyewitnesses that have very different reviews of what transpired in that meeting, some suggesting that Biden realizes that uh, there's a crisis despite saying there isn't a crisis and he is open to making policy changes and others saying, well, here's a Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader Pagliacci. We said we have to do both. There were a couple of people in the room who said, let's do border first. We said we have to do both together. And by both, he means we have to throw money at the border as well as throwing money at Ukraine. We won't just throw money at the border. Well, um, I think the House Republicans understand or should at this point that throwing money at the border is not the issue. It is the policies as memorialized in H.R. 2 that need to be changed before you have a conversation about anything else, it would seem to me. Um, Some Republicans not getting the message. Again, we talked about this a bit earlier, but I want to get our next guest comment on it. This is the Dignity Act, a legislation sponsored by Republican Representative Maria Gonzalez and Democrat Rep Hillary uh, Scholten, the former of Florida, the latter of Michigan. They were on with Brett Baer yesterday discussing it, and uh, this despite that the House Republican Caucus has already moved H.R. 2. Maria Gonzalez apparently thinks that this is sort of a bigger, better deal that should be under consideration. Act $25 billion to secure the border and catch and release, expedite asylum processing, criminal background checks, restitution, mandatory e-verify for employment, year-round H-2A farm ranch worker visas. Congresswoman Salazar, why is this important and how does it track differently than what's happening up there? It's very important because it's the only bill in Congress that is bipartisan and not only that, it accomplishes exactly what the country needs to seal the border, secure the border, and once that is done, once that border is secured, then we look back and we give some type of dignity to those people who have been here for more than five years who are contributing with your economy. Like my colleague said, this is, dignity is not a, an immigration reform law. This is a national security, it's an economic bill, because you know that the business, business sector is saying we need hands. Those hands are here. We just need to legalize them. I'm not talking about citizenship. I'm talking about dignity, not amnesty, dignity. This bill has... For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Homan, former acting ICE director. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, Dignity, not amnesty. Are you buying that? No. She's not very smart, obviously. Because when you reward... (laughs) Every time you talk about amnesty, it drives more people to come. When you reward legal behavior... It drives more people to come. Why do you think only five the people that are ordered removed by the immigration judge, if they're not in custody, why does only 6% leave? Because they know if they hide out long enough, they're going to get something. They're going to get amnesty. They're going to get DACA. We need to stop that. What, 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 people get ordered removal. They need to leave. So, look, we need to secure the board, absolutely. But you don't reward illegal behavior. That's just We keep going through the same vicious cycle every few years, and I guarantee the more attention they get on this dignity thing, the more they're going to come because they want to be a part of it. They're going to say, well, I've been here for seven years. And they'll go to some farm, they'll get a letter saying they worked on that farm for the last seven years. We dealt with this in 1986 after IRCA. 
She's doing on the same road. So, no, secure the border. There should be no compromise in that. H.R. 2 would be a game changer because most of it contains the Trump policies. I help, you know, write some of that. H.R. 2 will work. H.R. 2 will fix the border. That's what we need to stick to. And the House passed that, and and there was bipartisan support. Not as much as we wanted, but you know what? It's going to work. And and, and there's a lot of Democrat mayors and governors want to see it fixed. So I said we go over H.R. 2. Uh, and uh, the um, uh, effort by Republicans, some Republicans, certainly Democrats in both chambers, say, oh, uh, we'll give you $12 billion. we'll give you $25 billion. Is uh, the money that's being thrown around, is of that? Is that of any interest to you at this stage? It's not a money issue. It's a, it's a policy issue. You said it earlier. We did, I think that's your first statement you made. You're exactly on point. This is a policy issue. You don't need more border patrol agents. You don't need more technology. Look. Trump, the President Trump secured the border at the highest level ever in the history of this nation, and we did it through policy. If they would, re, if they would put the Remain in Mexico program back in and third safe country agreements with the Central American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, they would fix 85 percent of this problem tomorrow. And in the highest courts in the land, it says the Remain in Mexico program was legal. People are still claim asylum. But they're going to Mexico. And why is that important? Because if you look at immigration court data over the last decade, nine out of ten people who claim asylum at the border never get relief in the U.S. courts because they simply don't qualify for asylum. And what happens to that nine out of ten that gets order removed? They don't leave unless they're in detention, and this administration is releasing everybody. So bottom line is, Remain in Mexico was a game changer. People are still claim asylum, but they're not going to be allowed to be a fugitive of the United States when they lose their case. It worked. We proved it worked. If they want to secure the border, that's what they do. doesn't cost another dollar. How did you interpret this uh, open negotiation between the Mexican president, AMLO, and Biden about uh, Mexican help and stopping the flow to the southern border? And uh, in response to a commitment to help, AMLO wants $20 billion for Latin America. He wants to end the blockade in Cuba. He wants to end the sanctions in Venezuela. He wants $10 million uh, Hispanics from various countries uh, in the country right now to be given permanent legal status. I mean, that's a pretty bold negotiation. That's pretty bold ask by the Mexican president. And I, I just when we were talking about it before. I'm just left wondering what, what does he know about President Biden and his actual position and what he is and is not willing to do to make such a bold demand? Well, Amelo knows that we got a weak administration. We got a weak president. We got a weak secretary. And we got a weak uh, 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 secretary of state with Blinken. He's calling the shots. And, and that's, that's pretty pathetic because under President Trump, he didn't ask Mexico to help. He told him to help. He says, You're going to put military in the southern northern border. You're going to participate in the third safe country agreements. You're going to, you know, you're going to host the Remain in Mexico program. And if you don't, I'm going to tear up the hell out of you. And they did it. Central American countries on the third safe country agreement, he called them and said, I want you to be a part of it. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, well, look, I'm going to take every dollar of international aid away that I give you guys every millions of dollars every year. Guess what? Within 48 hours, they came to the table. President Trump was a game changer. This administration has given Mexico millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to help stem the flow, and, and, and it's like they're being held hostage. President Trump, when President Trump asked him that question, what we have done in the past, Tom, he said, well, we send millions of dollars down there to create, create opportunity zones so people don't have to leave their countries and create jobs down there. And how's the success of that, Tom? It doesn't work. The money doesn't get what it needs to get. The countries are corrupt. It, it just aligns the uh, pockets of politicians. He says, well, I'm not going to give them a single dollar. I'm going to take money away. 
And that's what he did, and they came to the table. Didn't cost him a dime. That shows a powerful president versus a weak president. And now that it, during a time when the U.S. needs more, you know, detention beds and things like this, tell us how Biden is stripping ICE of their resources. Oh, they're shutting down. They're shutting down uh, uh, ICE detention beds all the time. There's a facility in uh, Northern California. It's a two thousand bed facility, state of the art facility. They got eight people there, eight, because they're trying to shut it down. They, they've shut down three or four other facilities. So while while n- now they're asking for more money for detention. At the same time, they have thousands of empty ice beds. Again, it's a shell game. They're asking for more more money for the attention to make it sound like they're going to do something, but that money will be earmarked for NGOs to put them on airplanes and send them to the city of their choice, put them in a hotel room at $500 a night, feed them three meals a day with free medical care. At the same time, the beds and ice cost about $127 a night, 24-7 medical, three mesh squares a day, but they much rather have them not in detention. And why is that? Because of what I just told you. If they're not in detention, they're not going to leave when they get an order removal. That is what they're doing. Uh, yesterday you were in a hearing, a uh, congressional uh, House committee hearing, uh, talking about a number of issues related to the border, of course. But one of them was fentanyl trafficking. And this is a big issue since we're last couple of years. We've had a record number of overdoses in this country. And um, there seemed to be a a bit of an argument about how fentanyl is getting into this country, whether it's coming through ports of entry or it's coming through all of the spots along our southern border that are largely unguarded, at least some of the time. Uh, Can can you just address that in terms of how the traffickers work, the drug traffickers, as well as the, uh, the human traffickers? Look, the Dems want to claim that most of the fentanyl comes through the port of entry. Why do they want to do that? Because they don't want the blame put on them that they're not secure in the border. The border is wide open. So the fentanyl is coming across, killed 112,000 Americans. It's much better for them to say it's come through the port of entry where we're fully staffed and we're seizing it. It's just ridiculous argument. I've did this for over 30 years. The criminal cartel is going to use the route of least resistance. Do you think they're going to send every ounce of fentanyl to a port of entry and they know every vehicle is going to be stopped, every license plate is going to be run, every driver is going to be spoken to, and depending on those responses, depending on the CBP targeting system, they're going to secondary vehicle. So, what, and it's ridiculous they say it all comes through the port of entry. Now, I'll say one thing. Most of it seized at a port of entry. Why? Because they're fully staffed. But between the port of entries right now, people need to understand some of the sectors in the last half a year, there are several sectors on the southwest border, border patrol sectors, there hasn't been a single Border Patrol agent on patrol because they're all busy making baby formula, changing diapers, making hospital runs, taking people to airports. Not a single agent within hundreds of miles. And they're going to want to try to convince the American people, well, there's no fentanyl coming through there. It is a ridiculous, nonsensical argument. I'm telling you, I've done this for 30 years. Fentanyl is coming between the port of entry because the Border Patrol is overwhelmed with humanitarian issues, so there's wide open gaps. It's also coming maritime. Coast Guard sees on record amounts of it because they're, they're trying to go around the ports of entry and bring it into the water. So the argument yesterday was they kept saying, well, most of it's come through the port of entry. And I kept telling them, no, most of it's seized at a port of entry because the vehicles are stopped. You can't sit there and tell me you know what's happening between the port of entry because no one's there. And so the same thing, I assume, with uh, human traffickers. I mean, they, you, you talk about hundreds of miles of unguarded territory that's apparently navigable between ports of entry. So that's where they operate, too, path of least resistance. Absolutely. And that's why we have just shy of 2 million known gotaways now. Known gotaways. People are caught in video, drone traffic, central traffic. Got a, got, a, got a video of them, got an image. 
But we, they weren't arrested because Border Patrol was, again, too busy making baby formula and changing diapers and all that stuff. So, you know, so 1.9 million got away. Well, what so, about the you know, unaccompanied just, minors? I mean, I, one day last December, there were 390 children that were unaccompanied minors. Um, what what happens with them? Where do they go? We're at, we're at 440,000 now. And they go to ORR. ORR will, you know, release them to so-called vetted sponsors, sometimes relatives, many times not. But here's the, here's the issue with that. You know, the Secretary uh, uh, Becerra, the head of HHS, who testified, no, he didn't tell, he gave a speech the other day, he was bragging about how quick they release these kids. They're not in custody very long. We release them quick as possible. Okay, well, congratulations. You lost 100,000 of them. Uh, as of six months ago, they lost track of 85,000. Now we're over 100,000 because they released people to sponsors that weren't vetted properly. We found some of these children working midnight shift in, in meat packing plants, mm-hmm. cleaning up entrails. We found them in forced labor situations. We found them in indentured servitude and, and bonded. Uh, it's it just there's at least 100,000 children they can't find. They can't find the sponsors. They can't find the children. And based on my 34 years of experience, I'm telling you, some of these children are living a life of hell. They're going to be shown in pornographic movies. They're living with pedophiles. They're going to be in forced labor. It's it's just terrible how this administration, they claim to be humane, but this is the most inhumane administration I've ever seen. Tom Holman, former acting ICE director. Tom, thank you as always. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Look, it's not a World Economic Forum without the carries until even though John Kerry is sporting a bit of a long face these days because he had to leave his post as uh, uh, Ecos are. He was there. He's there in Davos. And a Rebel News reporter tracked him down and has some questions for him. And uh, Lord Kerry was none too pleased. What's the carbon footprint of these events every single year that you come here? You think it's worth it? That's a stupid question. Why do you think you're more important? Your carbon footprint doesn't matter, but everybody else around the world... Nobody ever suggested that. Don't make up stupid questions. Being here suggests that. Stupid question. You being here every single year and doing this suggests that. And and I have done a huge amount. Yeah, he has. He's done a huge amount of something or another. Um, He's bringing uh, Teresa's ketchup around, make sure that everybody's fully stocked. His daughter also made an appearance. Oh, so is she going to take off or take over for her father eventually? Maybe. Sure. The uh, eco-czar in waiting. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, her uh, John Kerry's daughter, Vanessa, um, she's just as apocalyptic as he is, runs in the family. I cannot think of a topic more urgent, actually, than the intersection of climate change and health. And I apologize that my back is to some folks. Um, the climate crisis is a health crisis, fundamentally. And that actually means it is a crisis, therefore, also of our stability, our security, our economic growth, and our fundamental future as a globe. When we think about it, health It's fundamental to everything that we are trying to do. The country, like Zambia, is now shutting down its schools because of a cholera outbreak that is from increased rainfall. 
in, mal in malaria is spreading in areas where it's been eradicated or removed in many of these countries. We are losing progress against our sustainable development goals. We have put billions of dollars towards You know what it sounds like? Sounds like we need another lockdown. Yeah, that's what I. Uh, that's, that's what, what it sounds like. That's what I heard. I got uh, lockdown, I know what lockdown, lockdown. I hear what you're saying, Vanessa. All right, lock her down. Remote learning. Let's go. Well, and don't forget, we've got food sources. Every meal you make, every bite you take, every single lunch with a crispy crunch, you will eat that box. Thank you, Klaus. Uh, if you thought uh, John and Vanessa were fun, well, you haven't heard anything yet. Because not only do we need a lockdown, well, we, need, we need more Western spend right. in a develop, the developing world, obviously, sure. Uh, we need to what build that dome the Biden administration was looking at to block out the sun in this country. So we need more domestic spend, too, not to mention subsidizing EV battery makers and solar panel producers and windmill manufacturers and the like. We also need to start putting people in prison. And by people, you know who I'm talking about. Ranchers and fishermen. Uh, it's a, 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 a long past due for farmers and ranchers and fishermen to be removed from polite society. That's not me saying it. This is, you know, a licensed environmental activist. Her name is Jojo Meta. She's the founder of Stop Ecocide Now. You got to make ecocide a crime. You got to put people away. And this is who the WEF platforms. These are your betters talking to one another. I mean, ecocide as a word is becoming more, it's becoming better known around the world. And the concept is generally mass damage and destruction of nature. Um, but legally speaking, um, what our organization and other collaborators aim to do is to have this recognized legally as a serious crime. Because one of the issues that sort of pervades all of this discussion is that we have a kind of cultural, very ingrained habit of not taking damage to nature as seriously as we take damage to people and property. Um, and that, I mean, you know, if you're campaigning for human rights, at least you know mass murder, torture, all of these things are serious crimes. But there's no equivalent in the environmental space. Um, and so, and, and you know, unlike a, an international crime like genocide that in, involves a specific intent, with ecocide what we see is actually what people are trying to do, what businesses are trying to do is make money, is, you know, is farm, is fish, is do all of these things that are um, you know, producing energy and so on um, as well. But what's it, what's missing is the awareness and the conscience around the side effects, around the collateral damage that happens with that. Yeah. Uh, what are you in for? Oh, I, uh, I accidentally killed a gargoyle gecko. What are you in for? Oh, yeah. Um, I ran over a Guatemalan bearded lizard. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, of course, uh, what uh, the gathering in Davos is all about. For more on these luminaries, minus Javier Mille, who was a delight we talked about earlier. Conrad Black joins us. We haven't spoken to him in a while. Great to have Lord Black, the uh, Baron Black of Cross Harbor. He's a businessman, writer, former newspaper publisher, as we well know, in Chicago. Conrad Black, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good speaking with you again, Dan. Uh, so um, I know you know some of those uh, enlightened folks in uh, Davos at the World Economic Forum. What, what's... 
What's your handle on their persistence in trying to uh, bend the world to their will? Uh, yeah, I, I went to Davos for 20 years, and I, um, I, I was in the media group, and, and it was uh, indeed I, I succeeded Bob Maxwell as the chairman of the media group. So it was actually useful for me just talking shop with people in the same business I was in or related businesses. But, of course, I got around a bit, and I got to know Klaus Schwab, the founder. And in those days, I'm going back now to the 80s and then for the 20 years after that, uh, it, it, it it was less um, threatening and aggressive than it has become. Uh, in those days, it was basically a bunch of uh, Europeans who were a kind of continental form of super patriots. And they acknowledged that Europe had got it terribly wrong a hundred years ago, and we got the world wars and Nazism and communism, and that was a bad thing. Uh, and then they had to invite the Americans in to keep the Russians out. But the Cold War was ending. And and then in that period that I attended, the Cold War did end. And then this new thing started, that they were all going to stand on each other's shoulders and rule the world uh, again, as they did 100 years ago. And um, and in within that, you had little countries, especially Belgium and the Dutch, taking their revenge on... Um, uh, by operating the European government, and, and, and this way they could get back at centuries of condescension from the bigger powers, Germany and France and England and so on. And mm. uh, uh, But then it was taken over, as so much of our society was, uh, by this new post-Cold War wave where showing a, a talented improvisation we would never have guessed they possessed, the international left, after being completely defeated in the Cold War, bloodlessly, climbed onto the environmental bandwagon. It was really just a bunch of conservationists, I mean, legitimate, if tedious conservationists, like, you know, Greenpeace, who'd come out and harass American aircraft carriers and things like this, but uh, a legitimate conservationists and butterfly collectors and bird watchers and so on, they pushed them aside, took over the environmental bandwagon, and turned it into a, a battering ram against capitalism in the name of saving the planet. And of course, it's, it's become a Frankenstein monster. It's lurching all around, and, and it is... Um, festooned with absolute hypocrites like John Kerry, who, who not only uh, behaves like a wealthy man, he's only a wealthy man through a combination of marriage and and the, the tragic death of his predecessor, his husband, to Mrs. Hines. And, and, uh, and, and so we have, we have this astonishing and virulent, uh, to put it in Miss... Um, carries health terms, contagion, this pandemic of utter hypocrisy and nonsense that is really the left trying to squeeze capitalism again, having failed to do so at the political level. Well, that was that was essentially the message that Melee delivered in part, which was a sort yes. of remarkable, remarkable Very moment. Very refreshing. But, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, and I don't, I don't the audience seemed like a bit bewildered after getting a 23-minute tongue lashing from the new Argentinian president and sort of politely clapped and tried to scurry him off stage and pretend that didn't happen as quickly as possible. 
Yeah, well, it was like when President Trump addressed them, you know, and basically said what they were saying was a lot of nonsense, and the United States would have nothing to do with it apart from the plan to plant more trees. He was all for that, but the rest of it was bunk, and they, you know. <laughs> well, what did you make of what uh, Jamie Dimon said yesterday when basically he told Democrats to grow up and be careful about using the term MAGA with a negative connotation? Uh, I, I agree with him, but I've got to say, to take a quote from Schiller, uh, late you come, but still you come. I mean, he was one of the <laughs> uh, the real cheerleaders of the whole Obama thing. You know, he was an oh, Obama yeah. groupie, and um, uh, but but he, he's a capable banker. There's no doubt about that, and he's uh, in an influential position. And uh, so, you know, we accept the grace of conversion in politics as elsewhere. So, yeah, I, I applaud him for it. Well, is it is it conversion uh, or is it? Uh... You know, civil strife is not in his business interests, and uh, he wants the no, Dems no, to be, no, it's not he just to be that. De- the Dems to be better. That, that he's been pretty clear that these attacks on the oil and gas industry are nonsense, and and we shouldn't be doing it. And they have to keep in mind the economic consequences of what they're advocating, and we shouldn't be putting ourselves in the hands of the Chinese and strategic uh, minerals and this sort of thing. He, I have to say, from what I've seen. Uh, he's been fine ever since he triumphantly announced to the then Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, who's since been surpassed by Mr. Garland as the greatest hypocrite in that office ever, um, that, that he was here to surrender the shareholders' money for mistakes his management made. Ever since then, I think he's been on, on the straight and narrow, and uh, I think we should all welcome him into our midst of sane people. Well, okay. All right. I'm just, you know, I'm always skeptical. There's a lot on that side, as you say, the Obama cheerleaders that just want the left to be better. I mean, yes, they're they're not. I mean, Jamie Dimon's too smart to completely go over the edge, although some have. He got Um, pretty close at one point. Well, but that's my point. And maybe he just wants the Dems to be a little bit better, be a little less antagonistic, be a little less autocratic. And um, so you uh, think it's just, just tactical advice? That's what I think. That's what I think. I, Look, I, like I, I have to say, I, I scarcely know the man. I don't think he would remember me, and I, I, I just don't feel qualified to, to impute motives to him. What you say could be right, but just it's a judgment. I, my view on this is uh, we, we welcome people who make sense. Uh, we can look into their motives later. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, <laughs> that's a win for us because that guy was a real enemy from the standpoint of common sense and, and, and sensible politics uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, that's a fair point. Um, so give us your, your handle on where you think this presidential race. I mean, you, you have great sort of historical perspective on these sorts of moments. And this is a unprecedented one in America. What, what, what's your handle on where this country goes in the next uh, 10 months? I think it goes to Trump. I, I think it will be seen as a great uh, a seminal point in the in the success and revitalization of American democracy, when the dust settles and can't and emotionalism subside, and people can see that more people in the country are alarmed at the corruption of the justice system and the the use of the prosecution uh, system uh, as a method of eliminating political opponents. 
um, than they are upset at the thought of a return to office of Donald Trump. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are upset at that prospect. and The, the Democrats are now left with nothing except Trump equals Hitler, which is about the stupidest and most outrageous and demonstrably false um, political slogan I have ever heard in a serious democratic country. But, um, I mean, we're comparing him to a man who plunged the world into war and, and, and sent 12 million people, totally innocent people by normal criteria, to death camps uh, and incinerated them. I mean, I, I, this is just insane. But uh, but um, I, I, I think that the, the problem they've got is not only that they have so horribly mismanaged every single policy area, uh, and have a completely implausible leader that they appear to be, you know, going into the into the valley of political death with. But the Trump, the Trump haters hate isn't there anymore. The Trump, the people hated some people. What was a somewhat uh, garish, boorish, boastful man that they thought of as a bully and, and an insufficiently uh, distinguished person to be president. And what they have now is. Uh, a, a Trump who, whose tweets don't have to be walked back every day and who is clearly, uh, he's for years now and, and reaching a peak at, at the present, is being assaulted in a completely illegitimate and outrageous and unconstitutional way. And even though he's an ex-president and a billionaire, he's an underdog fighting a just cause for to protect himself from from oppression and people identify with that and the right to identify with it i mean i think even his enemies have to agree that that he's fought his corner with great determination and courage and people naturally admire that so i i, I think i i think we're in a process where the wheels are coming off the the the, the whole democratic uh, plan uh, to retain office in all four directions, all the wheels are coming off and going off in different directions, and and uh, it, it is impossible. It's an implausible president, a failed administration, a charge Trump equals Hitler that no sane person with an IQ and in, in at least double figures could agree with, and and it won't fly. He is Conrad Black, Lord Black, Baron, uh, Baron Black of Cross Harbor. I want to be a lord. How do I get yeah, that? That title, you know, it's a grand thing, but it, yes. you know, it helps you get a dinner reservation in London. But, you know, that and the correct fare get me on the public transit system in Chicago. <laughs> He's also a businessman, writer, former newspaper publisher. He's got a new book I need to mention, The yes. Political and Strategic History of the World, Volume 1, From Antiquity to the Caesars, 14 AD. Always great to talk to you. Conrad Black, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you, too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.